Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you enjoy Jerusalem Unplugged, you may also like to listen to Stories from Palestine podcast. My name is Crystal. I am originally from the Netherlands. I am married to a Palestinian and I live in Beit Safafa between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. I studied history and tour guiding and I produce a weekly podcast called Stories from Palestine. You can find it on your favorite podcast player or go to the website storiesfrompalestine.info Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that I'm announcing a series dedicated to Jerusalem during World War I and a number of individuals that lived throughout uh, this period of time in the city of Jerusalem and left us with uh, plenty of records and documents. And also, I will eventually record an episode dedicated to a fascinating woman which I would call the real beauty queen of Jerusalem, given the success of a recent TV series available on Netflix with a, a similar title. This series will be divided in five episodes, starting with this one that will be dedicated to Jerusalem uh, during the wartime. I will start discussing uh, Jerusalem in the late Ottoman era, and I will provide details of how Jerusalem experienced World War I. The second episode will be dedicated to the arrival of the British, the battle for Jerusalem, its surrender, and eventually the first few years of Jerusalem under British administration. The next three episodes will be dedicated to three individuals who lived in Jerusalem throughout the war time. The Spanish consul, Conde de Bayobar, Leah Tannenbaum, a Jewish woman labeled as the beauty queen of Jerusalem, with a fascinating story that we will follow through. And lastly, the less known history of the American consul in Jerusalem, Otis Glazebrook. Otis Glazebrook was rather old when he arrived in Jerusalem, and he left right at the end of the war, when the Ottomans and the Americans broke diplomatic relations. And we will see how this history actually tells us more about uh, the future relations between America and eventually uh, Israel. So these are five episodes that are dedicated to this period in time and will mostly relied on my own work. But before we start talking about uh, Jerusalem in the late Ottoman era, I also want to say a big thanks to all of those scholars, authors that have been already a guest of Jerusalem Unplugged, and hopefully will be in the future, uh, that helped digging the history of Jerusalem in the late Ottoman era and throughout World War I. 
Salim Tamari, Issam Nassar, Abigail Jacobson, Michelle Campos, Louis Fishman, and others who really shaped the historical literature available for this period of time. Remember, until recently, really, when we look at uh, the history of Jerusalem in the late Ottoman era and the early years of the British rule, essentially, this was completely neglected. And in general, the assumption was that Jerusalem was a, a city of uh, no relevance whatsoever. And uh, only with the arrival of the British in 1917, eventually modernity, expressed in different ways, reached the city of Jerusalem. Now, this trope, this uh, stereotype, eventually was challenged, as I said, starting from the very beginning of the 21st century. A number of scholars and authors highlighted that actually Jerusalem was a thriving city already towards the end of the uh, Ottoman era, starting from the 1860s, 1870s. That doesn't mean that everything was great. Yet, when we look at the records of that period and we listen to the stories of Jerusalemites, but also travelers who had uh, a different kind of uh, uh, tone in their writing, not just uh, diminishing the job of the Ottomans and the locals, actually we can paint a different picture of a functioning and living locale that produced modernity in different ways, not just in technological sense, but also with the establishment of political institutions, the establishment of a lively political life, debates, arts and culture, the diffusion and spread of uh, newspapers, magazine, and later on of music through the gramophone. And we also learn that Jerusalem, despite holding this uh, religious status, was also a city of parties where the youth experienced similar lives as the youth of other Middle Eastern and European cities. And we have to say thanks to uh, a number of Jerusalemites that left us with very important di diaries, like Wasif Juaria, which, if you remember, was discussed by uh, Issam Nassar. And I really invite you to go back to that episode. It's a great episode about Jerusalem in the late Ottoman era and also discussing the life and the work of Wasif Juaria, a musician, a Jerusalemite, and an individual that left us with a sense of how Jerusalem was experienced by people living in the city across this period of time. Let me start talking about uh, late Ottoman Jerusalem. What do we know about it? Well, I think it's important to uh, locate Jerusalem within the larger context of the Ottoman Empire. So obviously Jerusalem was part of a region um, known as uh, Greater Syria, which Damascus was the capital, uh, in Arabic, Bilad Sham. But Jerusalem itself was uh, the capital city of the southern part of this region. And in time, the importance of Jerusalem grew. It's certainly true that Kudus uh, Isherif, as it was known in Turkish, Al-Quds, Jerusalem, grew in importance mostly because of the arrival of uh, Europeans who rediscovered the city and attached the city to uh, biblical uh, archaeology, uh, to the rediscovery of its past. Certainly the Europeans uh, exported the, you know, their stereotypes about Jerusalem, and they didn't really care too much about the city itself and the local inhabitants, but they created a nexus, they created a connection. The city grew in population with the arrival of migrants from within the uh, Ottoman Empire, with the arrival of uh, early uh, Jewish migrants from Eastern Europe, uh, and later on also Zionists from the same region. So w we see a dynamic uh, movement within the city of Jerusalem. And that also uh, marked the transition from this sort of a neglected city within the Ottoman administration into one that played a major role. The Ottomans understood the value of Jerusalem for the Europeans and also for themselves, and so began to play uh, a different role and to pay more attention to the importance of Jerusalem. We also should mention that Jerusalem uh, was the, the site of major changes, particularly in the uh, early decades of the 19th century, when uh, following the Napoleonic invasion of 1798, 
you know, I just don't really want to go into all of the story of uh, Mehmet or Muhammad Ali, uh, who came to rule Egypt and for about a decade controlled also Palestine before it was retaken by the um, by the Ottomans. But it's important to highlight it that it is exactly in that period of time that we see the first signs of uh, a process of modernization that started as a result of Egyptian administration. And I think this is important to highlight. Certainly, it's important to see and uh, understand the contribution of the Europeans towards starting this process. But we also have to understand that this process was started by local forces who uh, took advantage of this period of transition and tried to make changes that would benefit themselves and their communities for years to come. The, the Egyptian uh, administration of Jerusalem lasted only a decade, uh, really, between 1831 and 1840, but its effects really should not be underestimated. It's, uh, as I said earlier, under the uh, rulership of Ibrahim Pasha that uh, a council was eventually established and while this was composed most, mostly of Muslim elites, it also saw the presence of uh, local Christian and Jewish members of the various communities living in Jerusalem. And what we, have, what we can see here is the introduction of elements of representations, some sort of a checks and balances. Uh, it's hard to talk about democracy and full representation, but we can certainly see the seeds of introduction of sort of new institutions that would give uh, more voice to local inhabitants and certainly to the elites of uh, the local communities. And I think this is also, you know, uh, a key moment when we see the rise of what we call the local notables, members of various families, and I can just mention a few here, the Dajanis, the Khalidis, the Nashashibi, the Usainis, and others, who essentially acted as a, a channel between the local population and the Ottoman authorities. They did represent their own constituents, uh, often based on religious links. Some of these families were Christians, others were uh, Muslims, but also through a sort of a kinship. Or, you know, they created their own uh, patronage, their own network of connections which granted them this power. This power was uh, uh, fluid. It shifted throughout the decades. Some families rose up, and other families saw their power diminishing, yet they remained part of a circle of uh, local notables. It is also important to remember the decades of uh, uh, Egyptian rulership in terms of uh, the opening of European consulate. And I think this is an important element as we're going to see then later uh, the role of these consulates throughout World War I. But also it means that uh, more and more Europeans began to roam through the city, uh, through the streets uh, of Jerusalem. But not only individuals. With the opening of consulates, we also see the arrival of European institutions. The French, for instance, uh, uh, began to open auspices, mostly for pilgrims and travelers. Um, so did the Austrians, the Italians, the British, and others. Well, famously, the Russian uh, opened a compound where effectively they hosted uh, Russian pilgrims traveling to, to the holy places of Jerusalem and its surroundings. That also tells us that obviously Europeans began to uh, gain a foothold in the city and also to uh, mingle with a local population to an extent, but more importantly, they began to interject and interfere with the local politics. To make it a very long story short, in the last few decades of Ottoman rules, we often hear the voice of the Ottoman governors complaining with the central authorities in Istanbul, complaining because uh, they realized that the Europeans were slowly taking the upper hands in the relationship between uh, local authorities and the Ottoman power in Istanbul. And so slowly uh, but relentlessly all of these European uh, institutions began to dictate uh, basically their wants, what they wanted to do, and disregard local laws. 
And it's also important to remember that a lot of his institutions left us with plenty of records which depicted the Ottomans as uh, backwards, unable to administer properly the city. And so this is how the, the picture of Jerusalem was built for decades to come later, essentially discarding all of the work that the Ottomans uh, were putting and the effort that were putting into building a, a sort of a, a new and modern Jerusalem. And some of his modern Jerusalem was built upon legal changes, uh, the, uh, the establishment of various councils, the establishment of Jerusalem as a, an independent province within the Vilayet, the, the larger region of, the, uh, of Syria, the Mutar Saraflik of Jerusalem, which directly responded to Ottoman authorities in Istanbul. And so making the Ottoman governor of Jerusalem a very important authority, a very important figure, not just a puppet, but with a real power. And in this period of time, we also see, as I said earlier, the introduction of various councils at different levels. More importantly, as a number of scholars pointed out uh, throughout the podcast and others that I hope to have in the future, the Ottomans also established a municipality, one of the very few and one of the very first in the Ottoman Empire. So Jerusalem had councils dealing with sort of a regional affairs, but also a municipal council, which literally saw the election of a local mayor in which Local politics was debated, where Jews, Christians, and Muslims were represented, and they debated uh, sort of the local politics of Jerusalem, what to do about sanitation, about uh, building permits, about the relationship with European, about the opening or closing of certain institutions. So it's a thriving city where political life was modernizing at a fast pace. And this is something that had been neglected for a long time, and it's important to remember here why we approach the period of World War I. In August 1914, news of the events unfolding in Europe reached Jerusalem. Following the assassination of the heir to the Austrian throne, Franz Ferdinand, as we know, there was this kind of a diplomatic mechanism that led a number of European countries to declare war against each other. Now, obviously, the war would, did not just start as a result of uh, diplomacy. It was a very result of choices made by the leaders of these countries. At this time, the Ottoman Empire chose what we may define as armed neutrality. Essentially, they chose to remain neutral, but at the same time began to mobilize. We must say that the Ottoman Empire had been mobilized for military action, at least since 1908. First with an internal revolution that led the Young Turks and then the CUP, the Committee of Union and Power, to take sort of the government and re-establish the constitution in 1908, but also through proper military action following the invasion of Libya by the Italians and later on in 1912 and 1913, the First and Second Balkan Wars. It's true that the Ottoman Empire was mobilized in a sense that they had a core of soldiers that were ready for military action, but certainly they lacked resources. And it's probably the reasons why they chose uh, sort of neutrality at the beginning of the conflict. Besides, it was unclear how long the conflict would last, and it was also unclear if there was uh, one side that could have been uh, stronger than the other. So the Ottomans had a choice here. They were looking at, uh, obviously, the Germans and the Austrians, and on the other side, the traditionally, uh, uh, traditional allies, France and Britain, which are, were also allied with uh, sort of the uh, arch-enemy of the Ottomans, the Russians. So, here they are, and Jerusalem just played this uh, quiet role uh, within the empire. But early mobilization also meant that uh, cities, places like Jerusalem, began to experience the real... Uh, deal of mobilization, which was not just uh, mobilizing men, uh, trying to get men into the army, which later on will be, you know, full uh, conscriptions as soon as the uh, Ottomans joined the war effort uh, together with the Germans later in November 1914. But at the beginning was the idea to requisition material, to uh, start uh, getting ready for a possible conflict. 
and more importantly, to use the ideological value of Jerusalem as a holy city in order to defend the holy places. But obviously, this was all done uh, without knowing exactly what was going to happen. And I think this is an important element. Whenever we talk about this period of time, or in general, actually, we have to remember that people experience their own life without knowing what was going to happen. And so we shouldn't be surprised to find out that actually at the beginning, particularly when the Ottomans joined the war effort, they, they were supported by the local populations. And in general, uh, following the abolition of the capitulations, which were part of this mobilization process, uh, population of Jerusalem and all of our other Ottoman cities were happy, uh, particularly in relation to the abolition of the capitulation, which were considered like a restrictive measure and interference um, in several areas. The thing is, the capitulations, which were essentially a commercial treaties signed from the 16th century onwards by the Ottomans with European countries, then turned against the Ottomans. And uh, this had an impact on the daily lives of Ottoman citizens, whether in legal terms or in financial terms or in commercial terms. So the abolition uh, of the capitulation certainly played a major role in uh, providing a sort of a positive attitude uh, for the Ottomans towards the conflict. But that doesn't mean that people were... Uh, you know, ready for war, or they had an appetite for war. You know, that, that's a, a long shot between the two. Let's now focus on Jerusalem. And I think it's worth remembering that uh, Palestine was bordering British-occupied Egypt. So essentially Jerusalem, while it was certainly far away from the front, it could be considered a city uh, at the front, because basically between the Suez Canal and Jerusalem, we have only a few cities, Gaza on the coastline and Beersheba, which was by then a, a rather small uh, town in the uh, uh, desert. So essentially, Jerusalem acted as this sort of a center between the front and uh, the internal front of the Ottoman Empire. So from August 1914, the mobilization of material and ideological resources started to affect Jerusalem and also obviously involved the active, um, involved the uh, civilian population. Uh, officially, the empire, uh, remember, was still neutral, uh, but obviously, as I mentioned earlier, the CUP government knew that this situation would uh, not last, and um, they were obviously making arrangements to join the war effort one way or another. So the first step that the Ottomans took to establish the framework for mobilization was actually to declare martial law. So on August 3rd, 1914, the governor of Jerusalem, Majid Shevket, issued the following instructions. Martial law has been declared in the district of Jerusalem owing to the proposed mobilization of troops. The military authorities have undertaken to preserve peace from now on, and whoever disobeys the orders of the government or disturbs the peace will be court-martialed. Carriage of arms and firing inside the town is forbidden. And whoever hides in his house deserters or animals or does not give information of their whereabouts, if it is known, will be court-martialed. Those who wish to go away must apply for the military uh, bureaus where they are registered and obtain a permit. Whoever attempts to travel away without permit will be conducted to the court-martial, even if he is not subject to military service. Now, these are all basic rules essentially to start uh, restricting uh, movements and also making sure that uh, individuals, particularly men, would be available for potential conscription. In fact, a few days later, on August uh, 8, 1914, the governor of Jerusalem again made a general call to arms for all men born between 1872 and 1893, including Ottoman subjects employed by foreign consulates, so essentially everyone, so Christian, Jews, all who had been working for foreigners, all who were Ottoman citizens were called to arms. And now, by the order of the Minister of War, as I said, Jews and Christians too, up to uh, the age of 45 years, were called for military service. Now, we must differentiate here. Generally, Muslims fought in the war where Christian and Jews were often called to serve in labor battalions. So some of them did see military uh, action and combat, but very few. In theory also, 
uh, Christian and, Muslim, and Jews could pay an exemption tax, which was quoted around at 30 Turkish lira and uh, an extra tax of 10 Turkish liras for munitions. So essentially they had to pay 40 Turkish liras, which was a massive amount of money for an individual. And this request was too high. And so it was almost impossible for regular individuals to pay. Obviously those that had enough wealth, they did and you know, essentially skipped. But the largest majority of Jews and Christians served uh, in the Ottoman army. And I'd like here to point out that individuals like uh, David Ben-Gurion, for instance, served in the Ottoman army. So the founding father of, uh, of the state of Israel, right? And so here, here we are, and you know many others. Uh, I already mentioned Wasif Juaria. We see him uh, that will, you know, very important memoirs that he left with us in order to see what happened in Palestine uh, under the British, but obviously also under the Ottomans. And he too served in the Ottoman army uh, because we're not able to pay this tax. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Now, some... Escaped, obviously, uh, and you know the, the enlistment was uh, uh, carried out by the local gendarmerie under the control of the municipality, which tells us of the effectiveness of these institutions. And uh, we know that the uh, uh, headquarters of the Fourth Army, which was led by Jamal Pasha, was stationed in Damascus. And it looks like at the beginning, actually, co the conscription process was rather successful. In fact, we know that uh, maybe around sixteen thousand troops. Uh, conscripted throughout Palestine, gathered in Nablus uh, in late August. Now, this is just uh, the beginning. And uh, we also know that uh, Jerusalem too was uh, uh, sort of employed uh, in the mobilization effort uh, using its religious value. So, for instance, when the uh, uh, Sultan uh, which also sort of uh, dressed the clothes of the caliphs, uh, you know, called for a jihad. Jerusalem was used as a platform to uh, sort of uh, spread this message. You know, the Ottomans were obviously uh, controlling the three uh, oldest cities uh, of Islam, Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem. But Jerusalem was the only one that was effectively really close to, to them. Uh, war front, and so it became an important platform for the Ottomans to show their presence and control. In fact, Jamal Pasha and their Pasha Talat and other Ottoman officials visited Jerusalem at the very beginning of the war in order to show their strength and power together. And you know, they walked uh, throughout the city, and certainly uh, 
you know, uh, on the Aram al-Sharif, making sure that there will be photographers taking pictures. And so this is all part of his narrative showing, uh, you know, sort of this uh, religious connection, um, you know, to Jerusalem and using Jerusalem for propaganda purposes, obviously in order to sort of uh, elicit a positive response, particularly for the Muslims, but also in general, you know, for the Ottoman uh, population. In fact, it is also important to highlight that the Ottomans relied on the concept of patriotism. And so, uh, you know, in August 1914, we know that not just Muslims reported to military commander, but as I said, Ottoman Jews and Christians also paraded. And they expressed their, I would say, genuine pride in serving the empire. So, you know, in a sense, uh, this is what uh, we may call, you know, sort of the apex of this uh, uh, form of uh, Ottoman identity, you know, in Turkish, Osmanli Lake, this idea that people belonged to the Ottoman Empire. But it's true that, you know, this sort of a, a picture was very fragile, and as we obviously know, uh, during the course of the war, all the communities actually uh, sort of um, broke apart, particularly First, you know, the large numbers between the Arabs and the, uh, uh, and the Turks. And then, again, you know, within the sort of the communities, particularly, you have divisions between the Jews and the Christian and the Muslims. So uh, all of that uh, uh, identities came to play uh, their own role in the large uh, picture of the war. Now, we also should say that... Uh, um, Jerusalem was also affected uh, not only in terms of uh, conscriptions and ideological terms, but also in financial and commercial terms, because obviously the outbreak of the war saw uh, the disruption of trade, which caused a massive sharp in the uh, uh, revenue and the collection of revenue. And so, uh, you know, the army and so all of these conscripts faced a shortage of funds and provisions, which also affected the local population. Because, in fact, the military authorities began to requisition food for the war effort. And food was rationed. Now, I found some documents, you know, looking at prisons, for instance, and inmates received only water and three small loaves of bread each day. Now, already inmates were not really at the center of uh, uh, the administrative attention of the Ottomans. But, you know, with the conscription going on, obviously, people that were at the margins of society began to receive uh, almost nothing. And uh, obviously, to an extent, uh, you know, there is a sense that the Ottomans understood that the situation was not great, and the Ottomans showed uh, a measure of leniency towards, uh, you know, some of the subjects, and uh, they were trying to uh, sort of appease uh, the, the population but also they were very concerned about, uh, you know, raising a proper army, raising the money and raising the resources to support uh, the army. We also know that, uh, like in Jerusalem, where we have a, a sort of a strong uh, foreign presence, the, the Ottomans were obviously taking advantage of that and began to confiscate uh, properties, particularly after the Ottomans entered the war in November 1914. Um, you know, the proclamation of martial law just uh, created a sort of a state um, for which the Ottomans obviously began to mobilize, but really they couldn't do anything about sort of foreign presence. Once they declared war, obviously they began to confiscate properties and materials belonging to, uh, you know, sort of a French, British, and Russian institutions. But let me go back quickly to the question of uh, the financial collapse. You know, prices of all commodities began to rise. So basic foodstuff like rice and beans increased by 40 and 50% respectively. And coal, which was used for domestic uh, purposes, also increased by 50%. So um, local traders were mainly Christian and Jews, uh, specializing in the sale of soap, oil, and obviously tourist souvenirs, were suffering because obviously nobody then uh, traveled to Jerusalem. And uh, Muslim traders who were mainly involved in the sale of agricultural products and general foodstuff, actually fared the worst because they not only saw, you know, sort of a, a trade coming to a stall, but they had their goods 
taken by Ottoman authorities. And lastly, men working in the field were now conscripted. So the old production process simply stopped. And as I said earlier, we also have to look at space. So Jerusalem being a city now mobilized, so the Ottoman authorities coming and obviously seizing buildings. At the beginning, just open spaces for military purposes and you know some uh, Ottoman um, uh, official institutions like schools uh, were taken over. But it's from later on, from October, November, when eventually we see the Ottomans joining the war effort that we really saw a full occupation of schools, guest houses for pilgrims, hospitals that were all converted into barracks or military infirmaries. We also see that they began to occupy uh, religious uh, buildings, even though, you know, not necessarily they were part of the war effort. So the Franciscans uh, belonging to the Castro de Viole land reported in September 1914 the local authorities had seized convents and hospices. And, you know, what they did was basically to take clergy living in, you know, different um, institutions and gathering them together in one so that they could take over, uh, you know, the rest, whether Franciscan schools or... Uh. Now, the, also the, uh, um, the urban landscape change. In fact, and this is an interesting point for what was interesting about in environmental history, about 40 canons arrived in Jerusalem and, you know, this machinery required a lot of space for maneuver. And obviously, you know, the city of Jerusalem changed its landscape, essentially, because now the city is a militarized city where the presence of weapons is fairly visible and also space has been occupied by these weapons. Now, let me go back to the question of buildings, because I think this is an important one, uh, which also caused a lot of diplomatic issues between the Ottomans and, you know, foreigners, uh, not just during the war, but even after the war, when people began to reclaim properties, particularly institutions. So the seizure of buildings belonging to foreigners was part of a policy adopted by Jamal Pasha, who was the governor of Syria, uh, which also was meant to sort of refurbish uh, Palestine and Syria. Jamal Pasha is an interesting character, and uh, he had uh, great ideas about also urban planning. So for him, it was not just... Uh, um, you know, the idea of seizing a building for military purposes, but also to sort of uh, modernize the city, to change the look of the city, and also to establish, obviously, Ottoman authority in the city and kick out, obviously, you know, foreigners. For instance, Notre Dame de France, which is a beautiful building uh, just outside the walls uh, of the old city of Jerusalem, was turned into a resting station for Ottoman troops. Uh, Local monuments were placed under renovation and restoration. So again, you know, to sort of uh, beautify the city. And uh, the Greek Catholic Church of St. Anne uh, in the old city of Jerusalem was turned into an Islamic school to show that there was a restored Ottoman authority over the city. Yes, Europeans had a large presence. It was an important one. But actually, this was a, an Ottoman imperial city. And I think this is an important uh, element to remember. And another element in the process of mobilization is also the question of censorship. Now, obviously, the Ottomans wanted to prevent the circulation of uh, any anti-Ottoman and anti-Turkish propaganda. So local newspapers such as the Arabic Al-Karmil or the Hebrew Al-Hadut were all closed down and the publisher were arrested because basically the, the editors were accused of publishing anti-Ottoman articles. Um, the Ottoman authorities also shut down post offices, which by then actually were run by European countries, France, Britain, but also those Ottoman allies, like Austrian German uh, post offices, were closed. And the Ottomans wanted to reestablish their own authority and control. So obviously an Ottoman post office was open and... Uh, you know, all of the others were closed. The point is that they really they wanted to centralize the service in order to show that they centralized the power. The Ottomans entered the war in November 1914, as I said, which was a, a period of uh, considerable uncertainty regarding the future. Remember, no one 
knew what was going to happen. So it's easier for us now to look at how things have unfolded. But there were celebrations staged by the Ottoman regime, which up to a point were shared by the local people. They thought this war would actually provide some benefit, not just to obviously Jerusalemites and Palestine, but to the Ottoman uh, entity at large. And some also saw the war as a possibility to establish uh, some sort of an Arab identity and a strong one within the Ottoman Empire. Obviously, there were all of these ideas what to do next, right? They couldn't have foresee, foresaw any idea that the Ottoman Empire was going to collapse. And uh, once the war was declared, what is interesting is that actually people went back to their daily activities. There was some pessimism, there was anxiety, there was some celebration, uh, you know, for this effort, mobilization was over. And the war was now coming. Now, the period of the war, so essentially between 1914 to uh, December 1917, when the British have arrived, is a period where we don't have direct, you know, sources um, describing all of the events that took place in the city. There are some chronicles left by uh, clergy, particularly Catholic clergy. We do have uh, memoirs of uh, Wasif Jawaria. We have the diary of Isman Turjman and the diary of the Spanish consul Bayobar. Some notes left by the American consul and, you know, documents left by the, uh, by the Ottomans and, and the Germans. They give us a sense of what happened in Jerusalem during the war. And I want to focus just uh, on, on a couple of points here. I think the most important element to remember is the invasion of locusts. Many, after the war, began to remember World War I and the period of the war in Palestine and in Jerusalem as the invasion of the locusts of 1915. 1915, you know, just uh, regularly happens, there was an invasion of locusts, which coupled with the blockade of the Mediterranean coast by the Allied, essentially starved to death Palestine and Jerusalem. Food was no longer available. Crops were simply eaten, literally, by these locusts. And while there was food available, particularly in other parts of the Ottoman Empire, this food was, you know, in the hand of war profiteers, which sold it at the black market for outrageous prices, and not much reached Jerusalem. And so what we see is a city that is essentially starving. Uh, we have plenty of stories circulating and uh, told by all of the different people that I mentioned earlier of uh, people dying on the streets, women that were falling into prostitution in order to grab as much as they could in order to feed their children. We also have terrible stories, and I must say there is no much evidence other than, again, they've been reported as a sort of gossip, of um, cannibalism, stories that suggest that, you know, mothers, in order to uh, sustain themselves and feed other children, they actually ate uh, that children. Now, we don't know that, but I think it gives us a sense of a gruesome period that a Jerusalemite experienced between 1914, the late 1914 and late 1917. So this period certainly... Uh, you know, was uh, extremely problematic. We also see Jerusalem being mobilized, as I said earlier, in terms of uh, ideological uh, values. And uh, with the Ottomans turning into a Turkish uh, language and Turkish ideology, we see this development of Turkification, which clash with the development of Arab nationalism in Palestine, and particularly in Jerusalem. So Ottoman authorities, led by Jamal Pasha, often arrested and executed publicly uh, Arab nationalists. Jerusalem was not the same as Beirut in Lebanon, where dozens of Arab nationalists were executed. But quite a few were executed too in Jerusalem. And, you know, and often we have uh, pictures uh, uh, taken uh, of these executions, um, notices displayed throughout the city and throughout Palestine, essentially telling you know, people, look, this is what happened to Arab nationalists. If you don't 
um, you know, change if you keep uh, promoting this ideology, this is what is going to end up to you. And so, and, and in a sense, you may say that uh, this policy was counterproductive because Arab nationalists kept developing throughout Palestine and certainly in Jerusalem. We also see, and I think this is important, is the other side of the coin. Jerusalem experienced famine, experienced starvation, lack of resources, depopulation, but at the same time, the same memoirs, diaries, tell us that there was a thriving city, one that tried to not fall into despair. So we have uh, reports of uh, small parties, uh, people gathering in private houses, celebrating the various holidays, try to make the best out of that situation. And while social relations were at the point of collapse, still people tried to live their life. Um, we still have uh, weddings. We still have uh, children that are born. We still have, uh, as I said, celebration of uh, holidays. And while the city was depopulated, you know, throughout these diaries and memoirs, we really get a sense that people try to make sense of what they were experiencing and were trying to keep a sense, keep a, a, you know, a sense of humanity and trying to move forward, despite obviously the desperation and the suffering of other people. Jerusalem also experienced uh, small epidemics, which were brought by um, uh, soldiers, obviously, lack of hygiene, lack of uh, sanitization, lack of uh, water often, you know, helped the, the spread of various disease. And so Ottoman and foreign uh, doctors that were allowed to stay, particularly Germans, Austrian, and also Americans, uh, they were allowed to stay, obviously, you know, sort of uh, try to help the local population. We also see in this period of time the emergence of a different kind of uh, relationship between the community. Obviously, people are living together. Um, there is no opening up to the rest of the world. People that left, left, and there is no really major influx of new people other than a few uh, sort of uh, migrants from different parts of Palestine and certainly the soldiers traveling in and out of the city. But people obviously found themselves uh, sticking together and, uh, you know, brought people closer. One may argue and ask the question, did this help to establish better relations between Jerusalemites? Well, it's hard to say because obviously you know, then the war ended and we have a new administration coming. But suddenly in that period of time, looking at the chronicles and the diary and memoirs, you really get a sense that people came together um, because they had to be together regardless of religious affiliations, regardless of ethnic identity or language spoken. Their resources were scanty and so they had to be shared. And Jerusalem was a small locale in general, given also the depopulation that suffered. So war came and uh, obviously hit very hard the people of Jerusalem. We need to bear in mind that there are different ways of uh, looking at how the war impacted Jerusalem. You know, one may say that there's also some sort of a positive element because eventually, you know, if you look uh, from an inside perspective, well, you see that it's a moment... Uh, that led to the formation of certain ideologies uh, and sort of a rooting of Arab nationalism, but also the strengthening of uh, Zionism, particularly amongst the Jews that lived in, in that period of time. Um, again, this is all said after the war. And, and I want to just uh, uh, remember the um, podcast we uh, recorded with Louis Fishman uh, and he made a very important point, saying that we always have to remember that regardless of the, of the situations, uh, Ottoman subjects, Christian, Muslims, Jews, none of them could foresee the end of the Ottoman order. So they all worked and lived throughout the war, thinking that obviously there were going to be changes after the war, but they couldn't foresee the end of the Ottoman order. So 
uh, in a sense, the war did not prepare them to the end of that Ottoman order. But I prepared them for something to come, which was unknown, but not to the end of the Ottoman order. That was a sort of a something that came out of a, a surprise towards the uh, you know mid late 1917 when at some point it became clear that the Ottomans were no longer able to preserve their Ottoman unity. And at the same time we can say well probably already the Turks, so the Turkish component of the Ottoman Empire, which was sort of a, the one in control really, you know they began to uh, plan the future. These policies of Turkifications, we massively uh, affected uh, Palestine and Jerusalem as Turkish was essentially the only uh, official language recognized uh, in the Ottoman Empire during the war. They were making a point that the empire had to change and become Turkish in order to survive. So obviously we have different ideas here. In the next episode, we will look at the British arrival and the British conquest of Jerusalem in 1917. But before discussing those events, I will try to wrap up a few uh, ideas about the value of Jerusalem in European terms. Essentially, we will try to look at uh, why did the British put so much effort in order to get Jerusalem? What was the role in Jerusalem in all of the British and French uh, wartime planning? The Sykes-Picot Agreement, the McMahon Correspondence, the Balfour Declaration. Obviously, Jerusalem played different roles in all of these documents. And uh, that will also help us to understand better British occupation of Jerusalem and the military rule up until 1920. I hope you enjoyed this first part of Jerusalem in World War I and stay tuned for part two, the British conquest of Jerusalem, December 1917. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks and I'll see you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.